0: Welcome to the Shape of a Star podcast, where everyone has a story, we just need to shape it so that we're the star, or something like that, because life is up to interpretation and everything's everything. So, today on today's episode, or whenever you're listening to this, uh, I am bringing on someone who has been one of the people that has seen me grow, which I know, I kind of say that for everyone, but... This is literally someone that was in the position of power that did not abuse it. So that's kind of (laughs) cool. But yeah, so everyone hears me talk all about Guard all the time. Well, today we have on one of my former coaches. I call him Giz. He has a fancy name, but (laughs) I always screw up saying it. So I call him Giz. So without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Here is good, 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 Giz
1: hey how's it going so yeah it's a lot of letters but it's only two syllables guillaume so really? yeah it's french if uh, hey, i was like
0: that as like gill or something like that like
1: well the yeah. big light bulb for me teaching down in texas now is I mean, we have such a large um spanish-speaking population and guillermo is fairly common it was, and it was just that realization that the uill pattern basically makes the Y sound in multiple languages. And so once I said that, it was much more, even to non, non-Spanish speakers, they're just more familiar with that name. They were just like, oh, it's the same thing. So yeah. like hearing that, that just kind of made it all click. And speaking language, I didn't really need to, but I've got a shirt that has a French phrase on it. So um, if you're, it's just Superman, if you were French saying nothing matters, because oh. that's basically, it's a play on the French nihilism and, like, we're all doomed anyway, mindset that we jokingly have. So ha
0: ha. ha. So, <laughs>
1: as opposed to the American one who would get up and get in the fight and save the day. So.
0: Yeah, that's true. A lot so. of people have a lot of controversial opinions about la France. I mean, I think
1: a lot about that. I just had to do a big old research paper um where I had to pick apart some stuff about uh, Africa or about the African colonization and France's role in it and all that stuff. Cause my mom was a colonist and my grandfather was in the army. And so he was over there to help kind of put down the rebellion. So some interesting baggage to try to like uh, reconcile like family histories and narratives and all that stuff with like some stuff that in retrospect is probably pretty troubling or problematic. And then looking at the fact that you, you that he was also in the French Resistance during World War II, so it's like, so on one hand he was doing this big good and noble thing, but then on the other side, like I have to re- recognize that he was part of a power structure and society that basically upheld some things that I don't fully agree with, and like that have not really aged that well. So recognizing that and like learning how to. Think, look back on that
0: has been very interesting Yeah that would be super interesting. I didn't know your mom was a colonist. Well I mean she was 10 so it's not like she chose to go over
1: there it was more like hey your dad is in the army and so and he's good at fighting so we're gonna send him over to where the fighting's happening. So
0: no yeah that makes sense and I don't necessarily blame colonists for going there or I blame the governments for colonizing because people are going to pursue opportunity. I don't blame people for pursuing opportunity. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But
1: it's also there. And so pursuing opportunity is one thing, but when you, when you create this wild um, mindset that it's just like, like you, you introduce superiority in there as well, like where you're putting your own interests above everyone else's, that's where it gets really messy. And thankfully, I think for the most part, We've begun to outgrow that. I we certainly have not completely outgrown it. And It's still like there's still like a wide disparity um, between the, uh, the different global economies and all that stuff. But and, and there's still some people that really abuse and take advantage of stuff. It's just who's doing the abusing is starting to shift a little. But you didn't bring me on here to talk about geopolitics and history and all that stuff. As far as like I mean like there is a history moment coming up, but like not necessarily.
0: We're here to talk about your life and why you're a star and just how our lives intersect and just, I don't know, your opinions matter. Tangents are encouraged. Language is all allowed to be used, a.k.a. if you want to curse. I didn't tell you that beforehand, but I tell everyone that.
1: It's up to you, but I know know you work in
0: education too, so. (laughs) Yeah, I've learned to only curse when I get into the band director's office, after the door closes. (laughs) That's the key, isn't it? When the door closed. (laughs) Oh. I almost had a thing. like I almost said something the other day. It wasn't bad. It was just something funny. And I was like, whoops! <laughs> Close the door. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, speaking of band and guard and the life of how we intersect, how did you get in the guard? I have no idea about any of that. So,
1: many moons ago, I was a little trumpet player who didn't know how to do anything. Um, and they were hurting for euphonium players, and my dad was a brass guy as well. Uh played baritone and trombone. And so I'd always played around with the, the baritone a little bit and I could kind of do some stuff with it. And if you don't know band and music and all that stuff, baritones and euphoniums are pretty or not, they're not the same by at all, but like they're 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 close enough that if you can play one you can play the other. It's just there's a yeah. slight difference in like the tone quality and like how you use utilize them in orchestration and stuff like that. But and they how care yeah, yeah, and so, but they basically fu- uh, fulfill the tenor voice in any music. So I, I raised my hand and was a euphonium for about a semester before the band director said, well, now we need some tubas, so I'm going to go be the smallest kid in the tuba section because I was maybe 120 pounds tops at the time. Um, and when that all happened, uh, there was a the guy that moved into town who had done drum corps and color guard, um, drum, drum corps as a tuba player, or well, Contra, uh, we can get into the semantics of that later. But
0: <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so he, he had marched Contra uh, at some little uh, group that didn't make, or that didn't go very far, but it was local. So it was, it was just a good, he had that experience of getting his butt handed to him every day. Uh, and he fell in love with that experience. Um, and then he did color guard at his high school. So what had happened was this guy kind of took me under his wing because I didn't know anything and kind of helped me figure out how to be a functioning tuba player. And then when the, uh, when, when, the, when the spring semester was rolling around and it was time for indoor, he was like, Hey, I'm going to do indoor here. You want to join me? I was like, sure. I'm already following you around everywhere anyway. Aww. So, um, and then the same, and then going into our senior year after, or so, And he's also the reason that I wound up doing drum corps because he and I wound up going up to an audition camp for Crossman together um, during our senior year at high school. And while I did not continue on and do Crossman that year, he did. Um, And then I wound up joining him the next year in the horn line before switching over to Color Guard and and so on. And he turned out to be quite extraordinary as well. He wound up winning the individual and ensemble competitions on tuba for two years in a row and marching blue devils for three years, which if you know anything about uh, the activity, that's pretty remarkable. So he, he does not suck. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so TJ, if you're out there, thank you for basically putting me on a different trajectory. So, um, but yeah, that's basically how that all happened. And then he, he didn't continue doing the color guard thing uh, senior year, but I did. Um, And our junior year was terrible. Like we didn't have an instructor. We had like a mom write the show uh, and she'd never spun before. So it was interesting. Um, But there was something kind of, there was something kind of gratifying about the experience and the people that I was around. And it was, it was one of those things, like the band side of things was where I started to kind of find my people and then the guard was re- where it really clicked and i would found my group you know so getting that in there was pretty cool and then uh, my senior year we started at we had some instructors and a designer so we began to have a little bit of success and so it was like i'd started to get a bit of a pay- payoff for the for the time i'd been putting into it um so then i graduated from high school but i felt like i hadn't gotten everything i wanted out of the activity yet so Off I went to try out for an
0: independent team, and now here I am. Is that when you drove 20-something hours a weekend?
1: No, that was when I got onto a good team,
0: and I didn't feel like
1: moving. Well, not to to say that the team I was on was bad, but, like, a world-class organization. So that's – the team that I joined was local. It was just – it was an A-class team back when A-class was not jumping through flaming hoops just to get, like, half of a point so yeah um the a class has just turned into something completely different in the last especially the last like 10 years but it's like it's constantly changing but um yeah so i i went and marched with a group out based out of alexandria who rehearsed at edison high school of all places taught by bob nicholson um so rest in peace he was basically one of the first guys who gave me a chance in the activity after high school um and then i would go to him a lot for uh guidance and advice on like show design and all that stuff um even after aging out um but yeah i did that for a couple of years and then joined act one which was based out of herndon with the herndon director at the time and then I took a couple of years off to start impact with john and lauren burns and then went that and then after that was when i went up to new jersey and connecticut to do alter ego and Yeah, MapQuest, if we remember that thing, said that it was about four and a half hours to get from Virginia to um, West New York, New Jersey. That does not account for the fact that I'm driving through the D.C. metro area, the Baltimore metro area, the Philadelphia or something New Jersey metro area the new york metro area like west new york is literally across the river from it from um new york city so i was basically driving up there every weekend or driving past that up into connecticut um for rehearsals and contests and it was wild and i put a lot of miles on that car but yeah uh if you're if you're not sponsored by honda you should be because i i'm about to say that they got it done and they got me up and down pretty safely so
0: I have a Honda too. I love Honda. And no, we are not sponsored by them, but we're welcome to it.
1: <laughs> if you
0: want to offer Honda. There you
1: go. Um, but yeah, so that my little Honda Civic took me up and down the East coast for a couple of years. And it was, it was quite an experience because I was juggling that with working full time in an office and, uh, taking classes at a community college and coaching. So I basically didn't do anything else, but, um, it was it was a good experience, and it was definitely a, a challenge. And that was the and that was also kind of my doing that, and then doing drum corps. Um, my initial goal was to go and try to do to march like with a medalist program, like Pride of Cincinnati or something. But my second year at Alteriga was such a good experience that I felt like I that that was that I'd gotten what I wanted out of performing. Like the medal would have been great, but it would have been kind of just to say I not just to say I had the medal, because obviously there's a certain level of training and experience that goes with it, but the the fulfillment that I was looking for I got out of uh, this this organization. So that was it was around that point when I made that that conclusion to make the transition over to being a full time instructor. So then I went and got the offer for George Mason, which is where we met.
0: Woo. And we met and from there it's history Mm -hmm. that they've heard somewhat of. Either users. So where along the way did you get so good at rifle? Um so before I even knew that
1: I would be picking up a flag or a rifle or any of that stuff, like I, I on a very surface level I could recognize that there were certain things that I thought were cool. And one of them was seeing rifles go in the air and people catch them. Like it just on some like little like back lizard brain type thing it was satisfying you know um so go so i saw that and i was like well that's the thing i want to learn how to do and i wanted to go in and start learning it and i got a rifle and i started like playing around with it in um in high school but there wasn't really anyone that was teaching it Um, we already talked about my first year how that went my second year we had we did we did an all-flag show and our instructor was wonderful and she's a good judge she's actually a judge in the activity now um and she's great but she had limited time and resources to teach us so she was not going to be able to really put the time in to make us successful at rifle as well as flag um and she herself is a career flag which is which i've learned is not a dirty word but that just at the time i i didn't really recognize that that was a thing um But yeah, then I went off and did innovation. And that's where they were like, okay, all of you are spinning a rifle, whether you like it or not. And I learned that I had a long way to go. So it was a whole lot of dropping, getting yelled at, start over, and just do it over and over and over and over and over and over until I started learning how to thoughtfully practice, which was difficult. But yeah, then I just kind of lucked out and wound up finding my way being like, rifle number 10 out of 10 rifles in a lot of places when they were looking for that spot, you know, so kind of being in over my head, but squeaking in just enough and then figuring it out. (laughs) And then, um, but then there's also that feedback loop you get when you start getting good at something that you start doing it more. And I, and like once the light bulb clicked that it became fun to learn how to do this stuff, then I would start teaching myself more things, I would start breaking down videos, I would watch like, uh, the low camera on like World Championships DVDs and like, try to teach myself tricks from one or another organization. So that's kind of where that happened was I just spent a whole lot of time in the backyard figuring it out. Um, and then I got lucky enough to get t- uh, taught by some really good people along the way. So it was kind of it was kind of a mix of the two.
0: No, that's super cool to hear. Um, because you taught me rifle for the first time. Because my high school, it was not a thing. They thought it was weapon promotion, kind of that whole thinking. So mm. I never got to it until I got to Mason, where right. I don't know if I ever told you how bad I felt. So the whole thing with whatever that Miley Cyrus song was—not the Miley Cyrus song, but it was the song Miley Cyrus was in the music video for. Yeah, that whole warm-up exercise, like the whole you—you you did the exercise. Everyone basically you did like 230 drop spins. Yeah, like yeah. on rifle in a row, and like we we were tasked to do it without dropping. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'd restart. Well, all season we were getting better, but <laughs> we never made it. And I felt bad because I thought it was me. Because when you're in it, I'm not looking around. I'm too busy focusing on myself. Right. Yeah. And I did practice because. <laughs> you and you and the other coach would always constantly say like, Hey, keep going, make practicing. I would make sure that you knew I practice. Cause I take videos of myself practicing be like, you were not blaming me for this, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I'm not saying I'm going to get there. Right. Yeah.
1: And, and I was not like youth. I, I was kind of young and still not naive about it, but I didn't necessarily have the best tools to impart knowledge about things like endurance at the time you know what i mean like i just for like i knew that for me it was just i knew i was awful and so i just kept doing it until i got less awful and then did it a little more and then eventually it kind of transitioned over into being kind of good at it um mm-hmm. but i did not uh, i did not know about like a lot of the things that i do now about how to basically Fix or like not fix someone's mind, but like to think about how they how they approach stuff Um, to think about how or to kind of get in someone's brain a, a little bit and figure out how to make them want to achieve a little more. Like not that you didn't want to achieve, but there's a little there's a little psychological and emotional reserve that a lot of us don't really know we have until we're really pushed and to learn how to tap into or to teach people how to tap into that without being antagonistic is really difficult. Um, because it's really like, and I guess that's part of the East coast thing that, uh, that, cause we were going to talk about that a little bit later is, uh, talking about the cultures, of the activity, like East coast color guard has a history, uh, and a tradition of kind of like being in your face, like beat you into submission, spin your hands off and just wreck you. And it, it, it kind of turns into a bit of a work harder, not smarter thing. Yeah, and I ate that stuff up. Um, that's not necessarily the right answer for people, though. And learning that other people learn differently was really important. And learning how – and then coming down to Texas, um, I couldn't play that game anymore because we have rules like we have a certain amount of hours we're allowed to rehearse per week, and that's a state law. So – I had, to, I had to learn how to be more efficient with my time and to be more effective in getting the information in a shorter span of time to the students. So, um, so learning how to impart or to do all that was really eye-opening. And I think that if I had a chance, I mean, obviously we all grow, but if I had a chance to go back and do Mason again with what I know now, uh, I feel like I'd probably, or not I, I know that we would probably have... Um, a very different program in a lot of ways. Um, and hopefully all for the better. So I, I think that the one thing that I would want to hang on to from when I was there was just like that kind of like youthful optimism that we're all going to take over the world. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I remember that.
1: (laughs) Not that I'm old and jaded and bitter now, but like there, there is something to be said for when you don't know what you don't know how to do and you don't know what you're incapable of. Um, you're gonna you're gonna reach for things that your older self, your wiser self, might shoot down before you even try. So uh, if I could if I could hang on to that, that would be pretty fantastic. While applying my uh, these other things that I've gotten in the meantime, and I think that actually did get to happen a little bit this past winter, which is pretty cool as well, um, just because uh, of the change in uh, criteria for judging for the because it's it was the covid season so i can get into that a little bit more later if you want but basically it was just we didn't go for like points we went for like a festival rating and so i just i just went into it with a different philosophy and i i felt much better about the product and so did the students
0: i mean it's up now we could go into it now i don't care okay cool yeah so all right texas is weird for a lot
1: of different reasons but um One of the things that we do for marching band is it's there's an actual state level, like it's University Interscholastic League or UIL, which is kind of the governing body of all extracurriculars in Texas. Cheer, dance, football, debate, basketball, marching band, orchestra, choir, theater. It's all under the same umbrella. Um, and so that means that all of them have rules about the amount of hours you can practice per week. All of them have rules about academic eligibility. If you get below a C in any of your classes on any report card, you're benched. doesn't matter if you're the star of the show. It doesn't matter if you're the starting quarterback. Like doesn't matter if you're the drum major, you get a, you get below a C, you are benched until you get that grade up. Um, there are rules about, uh, when you can start learning your show for marching band. You can't start learning drill until August 1st. Um, which gets really interesting when you're in a school, in a district of innovation which is when they move your start date up so you're basically like you have like an entire month of band camp in July where you can't learn your drill but you can do a lot of technique and drills and so you don't actually start learning drill for real until you're in your after school rehearsals wow so it can get weird but um but one of the nice things is the the legitimacy that it's provided uh, a lot of these other activities in this framework that allows Texas to kind of be an assembly line for excellent organizations Um, and also more legitimacy for us on the instructional side, because I moved to Texas to actually get paid to do this instead of just do it for gas money. Um, (laughs) I'm not rolling in it, but I can pay my bills and I can pay my rent with color guard, which is not something you can say in most other States. Um,
0: Definitely not here.
1: Yeah. So, but the um uh what happens is or part of part of what makes UIL so fascinating and weird is that they that includes a state championships for marching band. Um so imagine if your VVODA had a state championships. Like so the way and so the progression is you do area, which would be like your normal festival, like uh where you get the one, two, three, four, or five. Um yeah. And the ratings are the same. Like one is good. Um, Think golf scoring, uh, where the lowest number is the best thing you can get. But then if you get a superior, you advance to the next round, which is called area, which is where you are up against all of the other people in your area that also got a one. And then they do it as a prelims finals. So the top half of the area finalists, or the, the top half of the people at area go into a finals performance. Then at area, uh, I think it's like the top, there's some weird number for how many it's representative for the amount of schools in your school size. Um, but it's like three or four of the area finalists then advance to state. And then state is a prelims finals contest as well. But what's weird about the whole thing is that it doesn't break down into your traditional like 87.275 or whatever numbers you normally see in other activities. It's still done on the number system of like one two three four and five and so the lowest numbers are still the best answers um so then so that can lead to some really interesting things where point spreads don't really matter anymore um and but but you can also really get wrecked by one judge or somebody or if you're just kind of solid across the board then you're then you get in over someone else who would would normally beat you in a different rubric so it gets interesting uh, again that's the best word i can use for it um, but anyway for indoor this past year what we decided to do is uh in the texas color guard circuit was we switched over to that format instead of your traditional five judges doing general effect general effect equipment movement and design analysis they instead had two uh performer analysis judges that basically did a combined movement and equipment thing and then one show design analysis um, and did the same rating thing. So the best possible number you could get, I think was a, I think it was a nine because it was like, like, cause it was like three categories or something like that, or an overall category in the end. So, so yeah, mathematically that's the best you could, or that would be the highest possible number you could get. So they still were able to do placements and scores uh, just through a modified approach, um, which was interesting, but they weren't super clear about that when they first announced that change. And so I was just thinking, oh, we're just going for a rating and there's no placements. It doesn't really matter. So I went in there, go go into the show with a different mindset where I wasn't obsessed with like those tenths of points or whatever, how to maximize this, that, or the other. I just went in thinking, what are the kids gonna like doing? sorry, I, I don't like actually saying kids. I usually just try to address them as the performers or the students. Um, I feel like addressing them in a more adult and responsible term helps uh, them assume that role and feel like they're being more spoken to as like partners rather than being spoken down to. So I, I, I found that that generally helps their investment because there's usually not a whole lot of teachers that try to meet them where they're at on that level where they're wanting to be recognized as, uh, as young adults. So um, trying to recognize that is really uh, something I value. Um, anyway, the point is, I was trying to figure out stuff that I could do with the students that was actually enjoyable to them, first and foremost. And second, what did I think they would need to know for going into the fall? And so I just basically came up with a checklist of like tosses, dance skills, manipulation skills, uh, Varieties of ideas and phrases and stuff like that that I thought would be worthwhile for the students to know how to do and then from there Made sure that I hit all of those over the course of a show Um, I had the students involved in the picking of the music for the first time Um, they didn't really know that they were picking music though What happened was I basically just gave them like a YouTube playlist of like 12 songs That was like a mix of like some contemporary music some like classical music some like weird color guard only music, Uh, you know, the type of stuff where it's just like nobody in their right mind would choose to listen to it, but somebody makes a color guard show out of it. Yeah. Uh, So, but the, uh, but yeah, so we, I I found a song or we found a song that was the right fit for the, for the students. And then I got the student leadership involved on the design side of things um, to try to keep them invested because, I was worried about them kind of checking out because and treating the season like it didn't matter. So getting them involved in like learning how to choreograph and learning how to stage and learning about color palettes and prop design and all that stuff uh, helped their investment. And I was able to like try to talk and explain things through with them a little more, Um, which fed into one of my other big educational goals for the students, which is to, um, give them the tools they need if they want to apply to be a technician somewhere while they're in college and work with a, with a smaller program. So that way they've got a little bit of money coming in doing something more enjoyable than flipping burgers um, while they're going and attending classes. So that's where that came from. But the end result of all of that was that I actually, I actually wound up writing a show that I liked a lot more than a lot of the other stuff that I'd done recently. And our feedback from the judges was way stronger in a lot of ways um like we're lucky in texas that we have access to some really extraordinary adjudicators and some of these people have some serious design chops and for them to be saying the things they were saying was really gratifying not just for me but also for the students who had a who had a, a part in the design and obviously were the ones tasked with performing it
0: i love that you just said that whole speech because i was taking notes the whole time but Ever since I've known you, you've been so technical and like point based, and like, so I would, for lack of a better word, because I really can't think of a better word, like, neurotic about it. Mm. (laughs) Meanwhile, you had me like over here, like, I'm here having a good time, everyone, like, whatever, (laughs) which I think pissed you off some days, but it was like, whatever, I'm here having a good time, leave me alone. You go home and be annoyed about it. I'm gonna go to my dorm and eat chicken nugget. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can still kind of have that like killer instinct, just don't be a jerk
1: about it. You know? Um, was I a jerk about it? No, no. I mean, like (laughs) I, I think I was, I'm talking about myself as an instructor, you know, like learning how to impart, like I said, like one of the big things that I've learned is how to more efficiently impart knowledge on students and learn how to make them want to achieve more than they, than they thought they were capable of. Um, you don't always need to be assigning laps you don't always need to be assigning push-ups you don't always need to make them like do it a bazillion times like there's a time and a place for everything and sometimes a little bit of that might be the answer but most of the time it's not going to uh get what you want out of it amusingly enough it's actually kind of coming up in my economics class um i decided to tack on two classes right now Um, one of them is economics and we're talking about this concept of like diminishing returns and like the more you do something, like the the amount you progress per repetition or the amount you gain financially per repetition of something like decreases, the more you do it. So yeah ha- and so you have to figure out how to maximize your gain on that. So learning like when to, when to when to cut it off is really important.
0: And my second part of my notes was Giz is being really hard on himself. <laughs> and it was not as bad of an experience as you were making it seem, because when you were speaking about Mason earlier, you were sounding doom and gloomish. I was like, I had a great time. Well, okay, so <laughs> it it's not. So there was a
1: lot of great stuff that happened. Uh, there were some things that were really frustrating. Um, and w- you and it me.
0: <laughs>
1: That's a great time. So, but it, it but it was it was one of those things like like where I felt like I had all these big thoughts and all these big ideas and all these big hopes and dreams. But I, like, I did not necessarily have the vocabulary to make those things happen to the level that I wanted them to. But I think that's just like the, the nature of any creative type is like we're constantly learning and we're constantly growing. And you can look back on, on your past work and just say, if I were to do that again, now, I would do it this way instead of that way. Um, so I, th- I think it's a matter of like scrutinizing, but also like being able to appreciate that I did learn some lessons and we did accomplish some pretty great things. Like the fact that two years in a row, um, the program was able to go into a gym and have people screaming before the show even started
0: was a pretty awesome experience. Um, and I'm going to take that with me for a long time.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: a long time, as if it hasn't been almost 10 years already. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang on to that for at least ten more years, and I'll hopefully get some more programs
1: that get that kind of reaction. But, um, yeah. So, like, learning how to do that and balance the the fun factor with all of the other stuff is really important. Like, we knew when we did the Tron show, like w- we knew that there were some serious organizations in our in, in our vicinity, and so we knew we weren't going to place be the best. We we knew we weren't going to like get a medal or anything like that, but we knew that we had a specific mission there, which was to say to everyone, "Hey, wake up! Mason is here. It's fun. It's cool. It's different, and you're going to want to be here next year." So we basically did that show as a recruiting pitch, and it worked. We got we got more people. We got some. We got some more talent. Not and again, this is not to to bag on the people that were in the Tron <laughs> show, but when you have a larger group of people coming in, like that, that means that like the the baseline or the baseline talent level is probably going to rise as well. And so we were able to do things in the second year that we couldn't even think of in the first year. Um, And we were able. And so the second year we did the same kind of thing where we wanted to, we wanted to be more competitive, but we wanted to also balance that with the appeal to newcomers. Um, And I, I think that's a, philosophically just a thing that independent organizations uh, when they're starting out need to be thinking about all the time it's not really until you're like open class and world class like finalists where you're just people have their jaws on the floor for the stuff you're doing that you can kind of deviate from that um when you're in a class and or you're a new organization and you're struggling to kind of like make a name for yourself that your brand has to be approachable um fun yeah yeah exactly and so when we did shows that made people get emotional and excited and have fun and like get hyped about it, like that felt really good. And um, this past season was kind of one of the first seasons I've had in a while that kind of recaptured some of that same kind of energy with the students, which was really cool. So I, I think it's big. It might bring me back to make a philosophical shift in like my design approach, which is really good um, because the other thing too is, I know you felt really cool in that costume, and <laughs> yes, yes uh, I did. And it's not just you, and like everybody else thought we looked cool too. And not that, not that my students look bad in their costumes or anything like that. I'm I'm really picky about that type of thing. But um, the the fact that it the fact that that happened and like that that there was such buy in from you guys really allowed us to ask a lot of you um for people that were of such a wide range of experience um not and again that's not to say that anyone's bad it's to say that everyone had
0: different training and experience we had such different experience everyone like it was amazing that (laughs) first of all it was amazing we found 14 people
1: yeah that was that was kind of remarkable in its own right and then i remember the day that we had to replace someone because of some issues, um, as it happens, like that's, and I've gotten older and I've learned stuff just happens. Life just happens. People have stuff going on. Um, and you can't always control that. But the fact that we were able to get someone and throw them in, in a single rehearsal was pretty remarkable. or um, when Mason of all people filled in the spot at Mason. Uh. So, um, yeah, but that was, I don't think we would have been able to do that if we had if we didn't have a show that was that looked like it was fun to perform.
0: Despite the fact that you knew everyone in the state, basically. Yeah, but you get where I'm going with that. Like, if if we put,
1: if we did something that was super, just it was about as exciting as watching paint dry. No one's gonna be like, "Yeah, I don't want it. I'm I'm good. I'm I'll, I'll wait until I'll wait and see what JMU does next year. I'll wait and see what CNU does next year. I'll wait and see what." Whoever else does next year, you know? Um, so we, the fact that we made that conscious effort to stay approachable was really important.
0: And yeah, Tron was fun, people. You could look it up. Uh, George Mason or like Mason Declaration 2012. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. And you'll see the Tron thing. We had the grid as our floor, a big ass floor, but <laughs> mm-hmm. there was a floor. And honestly, that helped with the drill. It was so much easier to pick up. And I think that's why Mason was able to come in in one rehearsal and do it, because mm-hmm. the floor helped so much.
1: Oh, yeah. That was such a... Uh... Yeah, that was a... We, we did we did a lot of things there that were... Uh, the function... Fo- or the form followed the function, if that makes sense. But And so we, we knew that we had students that were kind of new to the whole thing. And so we had a chance to so we had to do it in a way that would present it um, like get their feet wet because we had a whole lot of outdoor only people. And so we needed, we needed some of those geographic markers, uh, but we also didn't want it to be so, uh, what do you call it? Um, like <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what the right word is, but yeah, something, but it was also, we were new to the whole floor painting thing. Like we have painted other people's floors a little bit, but we hadn't really like figured out the whole designing and measuring and doing geometric patterns mm-hmm. and stuff. And amusingly enough, if you look up the video, you'll see that one of the boxes in one, in one of the corners is off by a foot, and it drove me nuts the whole year. It but drove I never you got nuts, <laughs> yeah. But like, no one ever, nobody ever commented on it because it was it was always it was like far it was in a corner where it was like the judge would have to be staring right at it, and there was so much already happening with that show that it did that it didn't take away from it, and the st- and the staging wasn't really impacted the whole time. So. It, but it was a good lesson for me in terms of uh, making sure that I'm a little more precise about that stuff. And I, and I thought I already was. but um, And around that time, I'm, I kind of learned a really fantastic phrase, which is measure twice, cut once.
0: Everyone, by the way, I'm just going to link that show in the notes, the show notes, the description, whatever. So <laughs> you don't have to Google for it. Just look in the description. You could watch me do whatever on on a grid. because yeah. It was super fun. It was a good time. Yeah. And although I was one of the people that never did winter before. So, I don't know. It still made me happy. I was one of the best dancers, and I will claim that till I die. Uh, Yeah, I know.
1: You were super expressive in that. And, like, it's always hard to do that stuff when you don't have people that are willing to throw themselves into it. Um, I really love when I have performers that throw themselves at the material, even if they're not... Technically, the most sound because teaching energy is way harder than teaching technique. <laughs> guilty,
0: so <laughs> guilty forever to yeah, this day. So that, <laughs> I, I was still to this day my rifle technique. Eh, I've tried. You know, I try to do Big Bang. That's what the song is called with Miley Cyrus. Oh well, yeah, that thing. Yeah, and
1: yeah, it was. And for people that don't know, like so, two hundred something spins isn't really that much in color guard land. But if you're relatively new to the equipment, it's an eternity. And we did layer it with a lot of lower body. And this was at a time where that wasn't quite the standard, the activity yet outside of the top classes. Um, now it's pretty much expected. But at the time, uh, layering lower body into our exercises was just kind of, uh, it was a little bold. And so it was it was a foreign concept for everybody, and then for me as an instructor, um, I basically figured it out through brute force on my own, but like being able to communicate how to layer the body and the equipment was something that, like, you guys were my guinea pigs to figure out how to teach it, so I, I went and took all those things and, and took that with me when I moved to Texas, um, so that, that helped prepare me for being able to hang down there for a little while.
0: Well, I'm glad <laughs> you learned. And yeah. I will never forget, one of my favorite guard memories happened during that. So with the lower body movement, we did the uh, demi-demi grand plie in first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. No, not sixth. We went through all five positions of the feet. And, and then I... it was like box slides. But mm-hmm. we would do it a lot of the time on the floor, although we would try and, like avoid the floor if we could. Because let me tell you, that floor was slippery. And le- I forgot who it was. It might have been me. I don't even remember. I just remember someone ate ass. Because <laughs> the floor <laughs> slid with them, and they just yeah. fell over.
1: It happens.
0: So it was one of the best garden like fails that I gladly remember. This they were fine, by the way. But yeah, so oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we
1: did have an injury that season, or the, but it didn't really. But it was like the last week of the season, and it was completely unrelated to that. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> So, details, details, onward and mm-hmm. upward. Speaking of onward, actually. So, when you did get to Texas, you basically took a 180 on your career ish and you started working towards your history degree and all that entails. Care to tell us about that journey and how that came about?
1: Yeah. So, actually, I did not start the history degree thing until really recently. Um, I've been in Texas now for, holy moly, I've been here for eight years. Um, so for the first four years, well, three and a half, I guess, uh, I was working with a, with a school named uh, Seven Lakes, which is pretty big, pretty prominent. And um, they've got some people there now that are... It's going to become a household name if it's not already outside of Texas, I think. Um, so they, they are going to be something pretty extraordinary real quick if, if you haven't heard of them. They um, need a TikTok. That's how you become famous these days. But um, yeah, so it was... And so I went basically from like trying to make it work at a bunch of little programs in Virginia to, and, and like being able to kind of make it work as well it, with a university program on the independent side for indoor, to big boy color guard. Six A High School is like a almost four thousand student campus with a three hundred member horn or band program, um, and my job was to go and build the color guard. Um, and we did, but it was really hard, and I learned a lot. Um, and then from there, I went to, or I went from that campus to another one. There, there are a couple of schools that I went to after Seven Lakes, but um, the the two that i I feel like I'm probably the most strongly affiliated with after that are Churchill Fulcher High School. Uh, which was a brand new campus. So I can tell you a little bit about learning how to build or open a new campus and then Kempner high school, which is where I'm still employed now. Um, So we, so basically uh, through all of that, I was just teaching a whole lot of color guard, running a lot of teams. Um, Like I built seven lakes up to have something like almost 80 to 90 students. I don't remember off the top of my head between the junior high and the high school program. Uh, It was massive. Um, And then full it was basically just down the street from them. And so it was kind of the same clientele. So it was a small campus at first, but we really blew up in numbers, uh, by year three and it was taking a lot out of me, but we were quite successful. We managed to talking about the UIL thing. We managed to make it to state finals in UIL, um, which was pretty wild to do for a school that had only been open for three years. Um, for the guards or the indoor side of things, the, the junior high team medaled at, at championships one year. The high school then uh, got bumped t- uh, two years in a row and made state finals in the class they got bumped to the, the my third year with the organization. So got a lot done with those guys. Um, but bouncing that between that and Kempner was a lot. Uh, Kempner is also a bigger program. Um, the dynamic is more the dynamic between me and the rest of the staff was more in line with what, how I want to do stuff. Um, so it was pretty. So like, I'm really happy with the people I'm working with at both organizations, but it got to a point where I was doing three periods of color guard at full and a period at of color guard at Kempner, just because the numbers weren't quite big enough to do it to justify a second class period there. Um, and then bouncing back and forth with like the four schools for one team after-school teams, practices for another, sometimes, and then back and forth, and there was, like, an hour drive between the two campuses. So, yeah, and then I live, like, an hour away from Fulcher, but about 20-something minutes away from Kempner, so it it was really just taking a huge toll on me to do all that mess. Um, And then my fiancé was basically never seeing me um, or anything, so it was a lot. Um, Eventually, it got to a point and um where i just got burnt out and i i started to be kind of get into like a fairly not negative place but just like i wasn't giving my best anymore uh i don't think um like competitively we were placing well we were scoring well but like for me as a person like i don't think i was really in a happy healthy place and so i i i left one of the programs and made a decision to go back to school at that point um so i've only been in school for two years now um But I had an associate's degree in music from uh, Northern Virginia Community College because I was planning on transferring to Mason to finish a bachelor's in music education. Um, Because, again, tuba player, I kind of figured it out one day. But uh, then I kept on getting color guard gigs and kept on getting sidetracked. So, yeah, but then the history thing started happening um, as a way to keep myself going without feeling overwhelmed with like a massive workload because you think getting a degree is more work than coaching color guard but when you're doing three i gotta do math give me a second um, when you're
0: driving that much alone <laughs> well yeah the
1: driving alone but i'm just trying to figure out how many hours i put into rehearsal at at full share it was just so eight a week plus another 15 a week for all the classes so that's 23 already plus um the practices for another uh for the other two ensembles there it was like i was pushing 30 hours at that campus uh when you include competitions and stuff and games uh and that's my second job um including all the other work that i'm doing uh, at kempner which is also around that time so imagine splitting a 60 hour work week between two places an hour apart from each other
0: while in school.
1: Yeah. So, well, the, that's, that's why the school seemed a lot easier. And, and like, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, with Camp Nero I was able to focus my energy on making one program good, which uh, was starting to yield results and then COVID happened. So we kind of got stopped a little bit uh, while I was in the process of rebooting my approach to teaching. Um, and then had to do it all online for a little while. Um, But yeah, so since then, I've been taking a whole lot of classes for history education. Uh, I finished all of my history credits, but then I learned that I only needed six more credits, um, three in economics and three in geography to to go from just having a history certification to a social studies certification. And that opens up the that makes me a far more competitive job candidate. So that became a fairly obvious thing to do uh, over the summer, just knock out a couple classes um, over five weeks and be ready to go. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, And then assuming all goes well, I'm going to be starting my student teaching, or sorry, my observations uh, for student teaching in the fall. And I'll do two semesters of that. And then a semester of student teaching, and then I'll be good to go. <clears throat> oh, and in the middle of all that, I have band camp, and I'm getting married at the end of the hey. summer. So, because our wedding was postponed, it was supposed to be um, last January, but COVID. So, or not January? Um,
0: February wasn't it?
1: No, it was January, January of 2021. That's right. Because I proposed in um, like based on New Year's Day of 2020. Um, and then, yeah, so we basically set the or the, the wedding date for about a year ahead of that. And then three months into the engagement is when the world shut down. So, yeah, that kind of, and, but now everyone's getting vaccinated everything's starting to open back up again. So we can actually talk about having a wedding, plus it's outside. So that's, that helps as well. Granted, it's going to be outside in Texas in the summer, but <laughs> I, I can't imagine. have everything I mean on the plus side it's kind of out in the country And there's a lot of tree cover And we've ad- we've adjusted our Attire um, To deal with it And not die Plus I will have come off of like four weeks of band camp So I'll be used to the heat
0: <laughs> oh, oh band And the heat But yeah so how did you choose history of all things To dive into before Expanding to social studies
1: Um I've always loved it. Um, or, well, that's that's kind of a, that's a little bit of a reductive statement. It's more that I, I've appreciated and enjoyed it, and I've thought that it was useful and important. Um, growing up, my dad, actually, his first degree was history before going into um, computer science and information technology and being a programmer for all of the government agencies. Um, so I basically just kind of grew up in an environment where History was respected and valued and presented in a manner that was nuanced and challenging, um, and not just the same bullet points that you hit every single day in a lot of classes. Um, And then I I felt, and and so I I always loved learning stories. I loved learning about what happened and why it happened. Like, I love picking apart the factors that caused something to happen in a certain way. so learning about like world war 1 in a lot of ways is really more interesting than world war 2 because of the ramifications of what happened there like world war 2 is basically the um, the end result of world war 1 and uh, failure of foreign policy and uh, american withdrawal from the peace agreements but that's and then on top of that the end of world war 1 basically spelled the end for all the european empires it's just a matter of how it was going to work out depending on the country.
0: <clears throat>
1: so learning those types of things was really fascinating. But then I started to also see the consequences of bad history teaching on American society, and I felt like that was a really important thing too. Uh, not that I'm—I feel like I'm on a one-person mission for that, but I, I know I'm not. <laughs> the it feels that way. But if I if I can if I can get through to a handful of kids or students, sorry, um, each year, then that's 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 a couple students who might not have heard it otherwise. And that's really important Um, is that just making people more conscientious and more understanding of the importance of history and learning it and and learning how to read the signs of bad stuff happening um, before it gets really bad. uh, Those are all things that I consider to be very valuable. Um, And so, yeah, that's and then from my gaming side, because you have a question for me about the game side of stuff. I love anything that's really heavily story-driven. And I, if it's a really good story, I like to dig into the lore of the world. And that's kind of uh, adjacent to what I'm doing right now. Um, so, yeah, that's... And I, I really like the research aspect of it, too. Like, learning how and why things happen the way they did. So, um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. Um, I did enjoy music theory. I did enjoy uh, my piano classes. I did enjoy all those things, but like it didn't quite click the way that this is. Um, I could do calculus. I could do physics. Um, like I understood them on a conceptual level and I could like push myself through doing the homework assignments on them, but there wasn't that sort of reward for it that I kind of felt doing this. And so I, I feel like this is something that is worthwhile.
0: Thank you. And I know you love to learn and advocate also for just minority groups in general. Mm-hmm. And you're, that's one like you were saying, like part of teaching history properly is advocating for them. Right. So I was also wondering too, uh, cause this is definitely not a thing I have or a thing I have to worry about. So I'll ask you cause I know you'll answer. So how do you stop yourself from being called like a white savior, or like a white knight when you're trying to advocate for other groups and you are a white male who is heterosexual?
1: That's a great question, because I know that there's other folks like me who are trying to get in there and do the right thing, Um, and it's about understanding what powers and privileges and responsibilities each of us have, and like any one of us can try to make the world better. That's the big thing. Um, But what I try to do as best I can is recognize who is saying it and why they're saying it. Um, Because there are some folks that are going to do that as a bad faith statement and use it as as a pejorative to try to discredit the statement because the statement might make them uncomfortable. Um, This might be if I'm dealing with someone who, from a political or ideological perspective, might not agree with the concept of advocating for marginalized groups. Um, And so learning that, recognizing that that is their purpose or their goal is really important um, because that I I tailor my approach to that. And I just say, no, the reason that these, the, the reason that I take this stance is because of this, this, and this. And the best thing that I can do in that case is just provide evidence like, and ask them are you familiar with this event this event this event this event and point out that yeah Tulsa happened uh move in Philadelphia happened uh Huey Newton happened I think it's Huey Newton I'm I'm blanking on names right now but like that these things happened that Alan Turing went through what he did that Harvey Milk uh Marsha Johnson like major names all across the board um that that these people were fighting for something big and some uh, or something big happened to them. And you may not have really learned about it or you might have learned a very sanitized version of it because for a lot for a long period of time, for about a generation, two generations. Part of our foreign policy revolved around teaching. America is great. Um, because we felt like we were in an existential threat from the Soviet Union. So recognizing that that had a serious impact on curriculum um, is, is a big factor there. So um, trying to just enlighten these people and also to say that I'm not here to destroy history or any of that stuff, um, but to tr- just give more of it. Um, the things that are in the books, for the most part, are not fabrications. But they're not, they're also not telling everything. So it's like, yeah, that stuff happened. But you also need to talk about this, this and this that that also happened alongside it. And these are the consequences of what's in the book. And these are the things that led to what you are reading about in the book. Um, Now, if we're talking about someone who is from a marginalized group, who is coming after me for that type of thing, uh, that's a very different kind of conversation. And I am lucky enough that I don't think I've really been called out in that way in a while, but largely if it's, if it, if that did happen, it was because I probably went in guns blazing on an issue that I wasn't fully informed or educated about. And I might have spoken on behalf of someone who was more capable of doing the speaking. And so recognize, and so what I try to do on that front is recognize that my best uh, ability or purpose at that point is to get open the door, not not open the door, like to to lift up or promote other people who know it better than I do, and like let the people who are, who know more, who've experienced more, experienced different things for me, like try to help them have their pla- have a platform to say the thing to share their experiences. If that makes any kind of sense,
0: it does. Because one of the biggest ways we could show advocacy, I feel, is shut up and listen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Half the time. Just let those who directly affect speak because we can like we all want to stand up for people, and make sure everything's good in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But when people are eligible and able to do it themselves and they're comfortable to, we don't have to. Like solidarity does not need to be a loud thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think like so, say for whatever reason, like there was an issue, I w- I would rather like whether it's uh, gay rights or something about minority rights, but because you fall into both, um, I would probably ask you for your experience the, and and your expertise on a lot of things first, and or try to get you to directly speak on the topic. Um, but if you're facing some kind of thing where my my support is wanted or needed, then I'll be there. Um, and but I also recognize that. I don't want to call it white privilege. I mean, but there is a kind of thing where I know that because of what I look like, a power dynamic, and, and yeah, I, I guess I don't know. Like, like I'm gonna get, like there are gonna be some people who are going to listen to me simply or more simply because of that, and so I'm so that could be just kind of like a Trojan horse thing where I'm like, hey, look at this, look at me. Just kidding. Go listen to Danny. Yeah.
0: Cause I got a lot to say
1: uh. so like, at that point, like my, my mission is not, my mission is really to just open a door, but let somebody else go in and do the work. Um, I think. So that's, that's the best thing I think I can try to do. But most importantly is just listen. Like I'll ask you, is, is that how you want it to go down? And if you, if you say, no, it, it should go this way instead of that way, then I acknowledge update and, Try to do better for the next one, and then ultimately, also, and that's that's the last thing is recognize that I'm going to get stuff wrong and just own up to it, um, and do better. If you do, if yeah. you do that, then that's really the best part, the best thing you can do in any situation.
0: In the episode before this, we were talking about growth comes in all ways, mm-hmm. and no one's going to fault you for growing and admitting that you were made a mistake or something, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, and like learning about how things like exceptionalism manifest in different countries has been really illuminating um and learning how it uh what it impacts like i've learned like learning about french exceptionalism as it relates to colonialism is really fascinating and it kind of takes a different tone versus the american version and dealing with the cold war like i was mentioning before so um but then also like i've put my foot in my mouth like trying to be supportive but maybe not quite saying it the way that it should have been said you know and i should where i should just sit, ask someone hey how do you want me to approach this um and also we grow up and we get older about certain things we think that things are okay at one point but then we get older and we're like that probably wasn't the right answer um i mean we were in our 20s and teens when things like daniel tosh started to get big where Like general a general rule of comedy is that you don't punch down, but I think his success came from him breaking that taboo and saying nasty things that were like for the shock value of it all, you know. And so, to an extent, we kind of got influenced by seeing that that could be a thing if we knew in our hearts that we weren't actually that person, but failing to recognize that even saying those things can still be problematic and hurtful and it, it just causes people to think differently about you in the end um, same thing like where you and and this is also about like having the right kind of friendship or relationship with somebody is making sure that you don't think you've got a pass on something because of a friendship
0: uh, I don't know if that makes any sense it does yeah I was just like thinking through it I was like no it makes sense just listen people that's all it takes open mind and listen and don't take uh critiquing or criticism too personally
1: Mm -hmm, for sure
0: it's all about growth and people should be okay with growth again i know it's a whole thing people need to like let people grow that's one of the biggest things i say like even on the minority side like people we have to let people grow Mm -hmm. because otherwise we're just holding on the heat and i know it sucks but it has to happen for sure. But this goes right into the next topic very well, actually. So you've also been a very outspoken about advocacy within the guard world. Mm-hmm. What brings that about? And where would you like to start?
1: Well, so I, th- I, I feel like I might have laid the foundation for talking about how being in the band world, I started to find my people. Um, and then the color guard world is where it really clicked. And I f- I was like, I'm home finally. I've got people that I really like, that I enjoy being around. Um, and I'm I'm getting a meaningful experience out of this. I'm enjoying the actual activity we're doing, uh, and the rewards that we get for it through our friendships, through the audience reaction, through the finals videos, the whatevers is all helping make all of that click. Um, So I got a lot out of it, and I really tried to advocate for people to participate in the activity as well because of all of that. Hope, uh, hoping that it would be that same kind of home for them. And I think as I got older, I started to hear more and more experiences and stories from people who did not get that same satisfaction, who did not get that same experience, who in in some cases had a very unwelcoming or un- very unpleasant experience. Um, and it made me think back on the experiences I had and what parts were and to try to be more objective about which parts were good and which parts were actually really bad for me. And to recognize that, or and then look at, at how I'm teaching to make sure that I'm not doing it falling or doing any of those things that ruined the experience for the people that I care about that, that try to continue on as well. Um, and so the, the advocacy kind of comes from this idea that I think people like this activity should be a home for everybody and if that it, and if there's something that's holding it back from being that home that we need to examine it and take it apart and prevent that from hurting people anymore um and we need to not allow people to stay um untouchable just because they have a resume that's like eight miles long and like a massive trophy rack or whatever you know there's no excusing treating people poorly at this point. Um, there's so many good people. Out- well, not that you need good people as an alternative to who you could hire for, like a crappy person. But this—it's especially inexcusable at this point. Like, there's just so much talent out there that you don't—you like, don't need to be working with people that don't treat students well. Um, they're just not worth it, no matter who they are, or who what their connections are. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, I even think that I've seen that uh, growth within you if it's just the time we've known each other. And we'll get into that with the next set of questions, too. So right. we've discussed behind the scenes and just in our lives about drum corps and the whole core world and the core life and all about it. You're very pro it. I'm sort of basically very anti it. So mm-hmm. that's something I wanted to talk about because. People that know me know my opinions, but there isn't, it's not all bad. There are things people like about it, and I want people to hear the good too, along with I want people to hear what I have to say about it too. But I know my friends hear a very one sided view, so Mm -hmm. I want to, like, let's just hash this out. (laughs) So, So, I guess we'll go with one the first part of it. What makes you so pro drum corps? Well, I think it ties into what I just said
1: about finding a home and a place like it. When I went to the audition camp that first year, like when I was like a junior in high school or a senior in high school, I was in over my head. But there was a thing there that had been missing from the high school experience. And I went to a good high school. But even at a good high school, you're going to have people that are not in it with that kind of like killer instinct, that they're just doing it because it's a requirement to meet their graduation whatevers. Um, so this was, the only, the only people that were there at that at that audition were people who wanted to be there, who really want to do it hardcore, full out. And to be in a room where everybody is that driven towards something like that was an amazing experience. And, and it was something that I wanted to go back and feel more of. Um, and then going back and doing three seasons of it, I, I would say I had two good seasons and one really bad season. Um, and my correction, or so my second season was really awful. And so my correction was I went to a different organization rather than give up on the actual activity. And I'm really glad that I chose to do that because my third season was fantastic as well. Um, so I, I'm very for it in terms of the, the people that you meet and the friendships you make, the performing opportunities presented to you, the training you get, the professional opportunities. Like I wouldn't have the job I've got right now if it weren't for the connections I've made doing this. Um, I wouldn't have friends literally across the world that I still talk to. I don't want to say how many years it's been, but it's been a few. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like I wouldn't have any of that if it weren't for, um this activity like this really weird niche extreme marching band thing. Um but I have to put an asterisk by being for it because it's like I'm for it as long as those are the types of experiences people are getting. Um I've had I've I've had an increasing number of students not have that experience after I pushed them towards doing it and I feel really guilty about it in a lot of times. But then from there, I've become much more measured about who I think should and should not continue on. And I try, and I try to be very frank and honest with students about that. Um, and then from there, I try to be more in tune with the organizations that these students are looking into. So I know if there's somebody that I don't want them being taught by um, or an uh, administration that's not at running the organization to my standard. Uh, in terms of making sure that the students are properly fed and the the buses are safe that they that they do all their background checking all of that stuff you know um so i've i've become much more um i've become much more particular about making sure that they continue on as long as it's a good home so i, I think that's the big thing there um yeah because um if you're not if you're not super into the drum corps world we've had kind of a reckoning hit the activity with a few big names finally being exposed for inappropriate behaviors and then just a really nasty culture at some organizations in general um, where it went beyond working really hard and pushing you to your limit to breaking people really and causing some serious harm. and that's not, that's obviously unacceptable, but it took a while for these organizations to really be held accountable because of the structure of the activity where these organizations are largely independent and sometimes they don't even have like functioning boards of directors and stuff like that. So um, if the director goes, the whole organization goes um, in some cases. So this, Big reckoning caused many of these organizations to be restructured entirely, and for certain staff members, instructors, and directors to be removed, which is great. Um, And there's a lot of there's now board members that are dedicated diversity or equity or watchdog type roles, which did not exist before. So that's fantastic. Um, I'm afraid that it might be a little early to tell as far as whether or not these positions are for real or if they are just there as a CYA for uh, lawyers and stuff, you know? So, but I'm very hopeful that they are actually good. Um, That said, I've also made the decision not to participate on the instructional side, unless I really know the people that I'm working with there. Um, So I got an offer to work with Genesis who I would not have gone to had it been a certain, had a certain staff member been there. Um, he is not involved, and the person that asked me to come aboard is a personal friend, and, and he and I go back a long way, and I trust that he would do right by the students at all times and make sure that he would not, and he would also only hire people that know what they're talking about and know how to treat students. So because I knew that he'd met that benchmark, uh, I would be okay being on the road with that program.
0: Does that mean you're touring the summer?
1: No, this was two. This was two summers ago.
0: Oh, Okay, I was like, wait, I didn't know you were touring. Wait, I don't even no, know if was happening no, here. No,
1: no, no. <laughs> no. If I tried to hit the road the summer of my wedding, like everyone would call off the wedding.
0: I yeah, <laughs> I was wondering that too. Like you sound like a busy person with your classes and everything too. So, oh wait, it would have already been out now. I keep forgetting we're in June already.
1: Yeah, no, school just got out because we pushed our start date um, back. So that's that was also fun.
0: <laughs> um. So. For the flip side everyone so i am pretty anti-core although i will not deny your training's amazing when you do tours so Mm -hmm. i will definitely say that's also one of the few pros that i have with it but for me it was i wasn't even involved in the world and i sensed the elitism and i knew me as a person back when it was eligible for me because once you turn 21 you can't do it basically Mm -hmm. which is i think somewhat problematic in its Mm -hmm. own right but uh, just because I'm like, you're so young, you're very impressionable then. I wish you would get like more adults that are sound mind and body there. Cause I feel like half this culture wouldn't happen of the bad things that you were mentioning. Because... Um,
1: if I can interject for a second on that topic. So there, there is an all age organization that has about like 30 or so performing units and they, they're largely competing on the East coast. Um, they are having some of these same problems or they were ha- facing some of these same problems. So what it, it's, it's not exclusive to drum corps. It's more cultural within the marching arts as a whole, um, which is a, which is a troubling or uh, thing in its own right, because you'll, you see it in the WGI percussion world, uh, a hall of famer was recently removed from there. Um, the WGI color guard world has some issues as well that it's, that are being resolved. Uh, the band world obviously has its own challenges and then the drum corps world and it's part. And so increasing the age get uh, groups is, in itself is not the only answer. Um, it might mitigate some issues, but it might also invite some other ones because if you have like a 30 year old sitting on a bus next to a 16 year old, obviously we want, we want people to just be decent people and trust and respect and not do the wrong thing, but there are opportunities present there that would not exist with people. It's very fair. So it's very, um,
0: very fair.
1: now granted, obviously like if something untoward were to happen in that type of setting, there's a crap ton of witnesses and all that stuff, but it's still just the what the whole thing relies on trust and without that trust, it's going to get ugly real quick. So, um and right now the trust is broken um the age thing is is because the whole thing started as an offshoot of uh, youth activities like boy scouts and all that stuff Adventure posts um girl scouts even and vfw foreign legion or american legion sorry um foreign legions french sorry um, and police posts and all that stuff where they were basically looking for something for kids to do um that was kind of patriotic post World War II, um, and there was one in every town basically. Um, as it got bigger and better, and uh, organizations like consolidated into like mega teams, so there would be like the instead of it being like one in every or in every town in Fairfax County, like all of the Fairfax County ones would come together into a mega group, but then it would be like all the Northern Virginia ones would come together into a, a super group. And so that's kind of how it all consolidated into what the structure that we've got now. Um, And that's around the same time that the touring model also came about. Um, So it it kind of, they all kind of fed each other. And yeah, there is an elitism that needs to be resolved, but um, that's the nature of it uh, from the age perspective.
0: So, and that makes total sense. And you bring up a good point about just like 30 sitting next to the bus. I wasn't thinking that old, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're totally right. It can go in a really cute direction, too. Uh, When I was at Alter Ego, there was um, a girl that I performed with. She was 16 and she was on the Sabre line of an independent world class color guard. But that's because she started spinning when she was like five. But her parents met in drum corps and they were still marching together in a senior corps with their daughter. So like it was like a whole family thing for them, which is super cute and wholesome and everything. Like, the dad was in the trumpet section, mom was in the collar guard, daughter was in the collar guard, and so they all marched together. Um, so that – so it can work out in a good way. It's just – like, you've got to make sure that you are really vigilant about finding the bad things and cutting them out real quick and, and basically making sure there's no fertile soil for the bad stuff to happen.
0: Yeah. And also the price, because I was like – I sense the elitism – I saw how expensive it was. I saw the time commitment, too. Because, like, some cores, they leave basically, like, mid-June. So, like, now-ish. And they're gone until, like, the week before Labor Day. Yeah. Yeah. And my whole mentality was, why am I paying thousands of dollars to go on tour with people I'll probably hate in about a week and a half. And then just sleep on the gym floor all summer. Yeah, and it's a
1: and, it, and it's a temperament and a personality thing. And some people that sounds really appealing, and other people it doesn't. Um, to an extent, when you first join an organization, you're not going to be friends with everybody. And but then eventually you start building some connections, and you do have those friends. Like I'm not I'm not someone who makes friends really quickly or really easily. Um, but the friends that I did make over the over those three summers, I, I still consider to be very valuable in my life. Um, and I, 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 I considered the, the training and the glory, I guess, of being on the finals video, not that it's all about the competition, but like, there is a little bit of that in there, you know, uh, the glory was worth the price and I was not doing anything really like, wasn't going to do weight tables for a summer. Like, sure. It's a little bit of money, but I could do that any year. I could do that anytime I could do it during a regular school year. So that was that was the the cost benefit analysis that I put to it. Um, the other thing too is that the activity or that the activity does a really terrible job of communicating that there are options for people that don't have the means or the willingness to do a full summer tour. Like you, like when I did it, I basically moved in like the last weekend of May um, or a week or the second to last week of May, and. I was gone all the way through the middle of August. There are weekend only organizations that compete in the junior division and DCI. Uh, senior organizations are weekend only as well um, because people work their nine to five job and then go and do drum corps on the weekend. Um, but people don't know that. Like you didn't know that when you were younger. And so, but had you known that and had there been an organization, Of that nature that was accessible to you, I think you would have seen, uh, you might have had a different mindset to some of it, or you would have, the barrier for entry wouldn't have been as high. Um, I would say the barrier, yeah. Yeah. Like, and 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 the price has only gotten worse. And I think what one of the things I'm hoping for, though, is that this pandemic canceling DCI last year and giving us like a baby version of DCI this year will cause a massive amount of introspection and thinking about like what do we really need and how do we really spend that money um because it was 1700 when i did it and now it's like over 4000 for a summer so part of that is things like the cost of fuel has gone up and then inflation in general like it, things are more expensive now like there is but the, the rate of cost increase is higher than the rate of inflation and the, and the higher than the rate of the cost of food and gas and all that stuff. So there's something else happening there that's really troubling. And even then, they still don't, that's still not enough to cover their operating expenses for a full competitive season. They still have to do crap tons of fundraisers and rely on donations from the alumni and all that.
0: I will also say that part of the elitism for me is just that there are a handful of people that return from CORE that were not changed personality wise, I could I guess I could say I don't know. They bought into dailyism and they came back and they were super snooty and I was like, I'm over you. So well, that, I admit. Yeah. So that that is my yeah, bias I mean,
1: too. Well yeah, and you go and you do this thing and you put your heart and soul into it for a couple months and you get really freaking good at it and you've just had this life-changing experience. And all of a sudden you look at people who haven't had that experience a little differently. And it takes a certain amount of maturity to recognize not that other people aren't going to do that. And that doesn't take away from any of their value. It just means that you did something different. Um, but again, when we're talking about people who are still developing and they're 18, 19, 20 years old, that's not yep. really where they're at yet. Um, it took me a while after aging out to really have, like you, you, you got me like after I really started to recognize that I didn't need to be like that but it takes a while for people to, to like deprogram that. And it's not even like the cores are really train us to think that we're better people or anything like that. It's just, we, we fall in love with being around other people like us and when we can't find them then that that's kind of the manifestation of it that you might see.
0: That is a take. I don't know. Like there was it's, a it's lot of okay.
1: that. that's, 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 that's a different issue. It's like just, just saying that that's where it comes from is not the same thing as making it. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: No, I just meant that's an opinion on where it stems from. But uh, I've been doing psych analyzing, judge, oh, judging people forever. Sorry, I muted myself for half a second. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, and I've just seen so many changes. And it's not only drum corps. It's a mm-hmm. lot of like the top guards in the country. Like it's a lot of different places and people. And yeah. I just never, which, which we've talked about before too. I'm very much, I'm not trying to make it in the big leagues. I'm just like, let me make my high school really happy and like make memories to pass on and think back happily on. And if they want to pursue higher, great. I'll encourage you. I'll probably link them to you because you know a lot more than I do because I've actively distanced my life from it. Right. But yeah, I'm just like, eh, I don't know. I've had a lot of bad experiences with, a lot of it. And I think it's just like what you were saying. It depends on your experience and what you're going to get out of it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I I was just saying, I know for me, it was going to be a very different experience. Like it would not have been this life changing thing. And my priorities were different, I guess too, Mm -hmm. because we've already talked about too. I didn't have the killer instinct. I was here to have a good time. I would have loved to have been like core level, like trained and stuff, but not at the expense of, all the other stuff that I would have also been dealing with along the way. Right. And it's just, it was me knowing my mentality and then me experiencing things along life afterwards. And I was like, you know, this isn't for me again. If you want to go good for you, everyone that's listening out there. But Mm -hmm. for me, I'm not going to be one that's like, Oh yeah, you should totally go. I'll be like, all right, go and have the best time that you can make it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. So that's, I I would be really fascinated to learn about if this phenomenon is limited to our world, or if this is just what happens, like that student that goes to the travel soccer league versus being just on their school soccer league or something like that, or the kid that grows up in the dance studio versus the kid that just does dance team in high school, you know, like, is there a shift? Like how do we address the shift that can happen in a person's or how they present themselves um, in a, like they're, they're going to change and they're going to mature and they're going to grow up real quick and they're going to, but they're going to also have a different mindset on a lot of things because of the, how they work being changed and like being forced to rise to a new level. But how do we make sure that that does not go down a dark road or a negative road? Um, I'm not sure there there's a, there's a more specific way I, I'm trying to address it that. I can't think of off the top of my head.
0: It's but, just like sports psychology in general competition psychology and just like exactly what you're saying too it's like because it's definitely not just band i'll say that flat out Mm because i've seen like so many other people try to achieve the best i've seen people like try and like be the elites of their industries and whatever and i know it does play a big role in like uh it's just prevalent in theater world it's prevalent everywhere Mm -hmm. but I just, that's also why I didn't pursue theater. Cause I was like, I'm not like this competitive about it. I'll go right. and do what I do, which I think is a healthy mentality for me. And I try to instill that everywhere else, but yeah, you're totally right. It's not just us. And I would love to see how people tackle it.
1: Yeah. Cause um, I'm going to jump back for a hot second. on um, Cause we didn't really talk about the differences in guard culture, but one of the things that I do know is a uh, part of the reputation is that the East coast is really like, that super intense, aggressive, screaming, kill, 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 uh-huh. spin your hands off. And then the West Coast, I've had the stereotype is more about the dancing and not so much the spinning. But their their ability levels in spinning has really taken off, especially in the last like couple of years. But the other thing, too, is that they're much more chill. and But that doesn't mean they can't throw down when it's time. Um, I know plenty of people who came from those types of organizations who... It, like they we they, we would call it the switch. It's just like they're goofing around. They're dumb. They're silly. They're whatever. They're chill and they're hanging out. But then they, when it's work time, they literally is they they snap on. They snap up and they're like, okay, I'm gonna work really freaking hard for four hours. Make these four hours way more productive than your eight hours. And then I'm gonna go back to having fun. Yep. And like learning how to have that switch is part of it for sure. And to an extent I've been able, like, because of the eight hour rule, I've had to like, kind of learn how to do that with my, with my Texas kids. So
0: yeah, I can't imagine how you only have eight hours a week if you have after school and then some Saturdays.
1: Yeah, no, we don't do Saturdays. It's just not a thing.
0: Oh, okay. See, I didn't know from winter season if you did Saturdays or not.
1: Well, okay. So the funny thing is for winter, um, indoor is not under the UIL umbrella. Oh, So technically we can do uh, stuff during the indoor season. The other, the other exception for indoor or for um, UIL is if school is out of session for more than four days, then you can have practices like basically whatever you want over the course of that, those, that span of time. So I know a lot of people who basically, because of the timing of spring break will um, spring break is in March down here. Um, so it's right as as winter guard season is wrapping up, so that makes everything really extra special and fun and challenging. But um uh, <laughs> there's a, there are two good sides to it though. For a period of time like that, academic eligibility doesn't matter. So you're you could have a kid who is ineligible all season long who can suddenly perform at championships if your championships is on spring break. Oh yeah. Uh, The other thing I've seen happen is people basically just do like a boot camp where they just like do like uh, eight hour days. Like we don't do you're not going to find a team that practices on a Sunday in Texas. It's just it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, Well, for obvious reasons. But um, but they'll end up doing like eight hours on that first Saturday of spring break, then eight hours every day or 12 hours every day for the next five days after Sunday. And basically, just completely turn the show upside down and magically become world class in a class, like with an A class program, and then go and like demolish everybody at championships. So people will play that game a little bit sometimes.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of tricks and manipulability and available yeah, I mean, in all performing arts. I'll say all performing arts.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so it's like there's going to be some amount of gaming in the system and knowing what you can and can't do, but then it's also like. If, those, if the rules, like, if it doesn't work, then change the rules. Um, True. Although I would say that the people who do that or play the game like that are also the people that are generally the most listened to within a circuit and are most capable of keeping the rule uh, 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 rules or a structure in place.
0: Yeah, it's a power dynamic.
1: So, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but we're also we're also of a different mindset down here with those higher paying programs like band directors want to get their money's worth. Yep. You're not going to throw the money that you throw at me without me producing some kind of results. Um and that's just the way it's going to be. Um, because it's
0: their job on the line too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And because they'll have they'll have the principal being like, "Hey, your trophy rack's not really filling up. What's going on?" And because principals kind of look at that as the trophy rack is the measure of excellence, which is a big thing in its own right. Um, yep. <laughs> but um, and there's there was a really wonderful part of a foreword from a recent music education textbook that addressed that issue. Um, it was by uh, what do you call it. Um, She's from, she's one of the, she's one of the conducting professors at Northwestern University. So like one of those types of people that like, if she talks, you listen, but she basically asked like, why are we spending an entire semester on eight minutes of music? Why are we like, what kind of music education are we instilling in kids on that versus like a love of music? And what are we doing when we do the same thing when we beat Uh, a 10 minute concert program or a 15 minute concert program into them in the in the following semester. And she's got a really good point there about being able to balance like the competitive need or about like not having the cart go before the horse. I think is the right way to put that, you know, like the competitive need outweighing the educational need. So,
0: yeah. And I think that I totally understand what you're saying. And that's something I've noticed just within like my world, because I'm working in special ed now, mm. and for us, I know it's a completely different ball game, but the way you measure success is very relative for your life experiences and where you are. Yeah, and I wish that people would kind of just be gentler with themselves with how you measure su- measure success because there's success in so many different things, yeah, in sure. so many different ways. And I think that's a part, a big part of what you were saying too, like your trophy case isn't filling up. Well, maybe not, but other things could be measuring success as well. Yeah. And yeah exactly. I just wish that more people would celebrate all the types types of success in the world. Right. On
1: the plus side though, like with what I'm doing, like my boss and I are very clear with each other. Like I'm hiring you to do it this way and, and do this, you know? Um so it's not like he's changing the expectations on me partway through, you know. And yeah. so he he's he's more of the mindset that like placement and, and all that stuff is great, but it's more about building us building a program where the students are happy and like we've got good numbers and stuff like that. Um, like that's priority one, you know. Um, and i think within that though i get a little more freedom to do the things that i think are right for a program and so there's some competitive success is a byproduct of me just pushing the kids to be good just like your season
0: this past yeah. winter
1: exactly so yeah. and so it, I, I guess for any of you that are in a, in a job search especially in like the pageantry arts and you're like looking at for color guard jobs make sure you and your boss are exactly on the same page about what they want out of you and what you can provide
0: um and that should be established in like the first interview,
1: exactly. So, because um, like that was part of why I left. I'm not going to say names, but like why I've left an organization or two in the past where the the there was not that kind of clarity, and there was or there was a shift in the expectations that was not being communicated to me. All of a sudden, things were not were happening that were my fault when I when it wasn't originally part of my responsibilities. So. And periodically, I would try to, like, or when I could, I would adjust my approach to accommodate that. But it came at the expense of me doing the things that I knew I was good at a lot of the time.
0: Actually, that happened to me similarly. And people in the world, just when you have as clear expectations the beginning, it clears up a lot of confusion. And when things like that do happen, even if you do leave a program, sometimes the program will realize what actually happened later on. You know, time is, what is that phrase? time is like clarity or something like that like oh so 2020 funny. for sure that and <laughs> i got many just to get
1: 2020 out of our vocabulary after last year so
0: <laughs> probably but yeah so it's like mentalities like that and hindsight it's 2020ing like i got invited back to that program and they were like all for it. they realized everything i was saying and doing and everything's been smooth sailing since so Uh, It all starts from beginning establishing boundaries and expectations, healthy boundaries and expectations. Exactly. Life skills, which is a life (laughs) skill. So take that as you will. Another thing that builds a lot of life skills, other than everything we've been talking about, is video games. So I know you're like a huge gamer. (laughs) And so I almost wore my Sonic the Hedgehog shirt. Aww. (laughs) Should have. It would have been the same colors. Um, (laughs) What's your favorite game?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one because I I've, I've got such a diverse taste of things. Are, like I'll bounce from RPGs to strategy to fight not so much fighting games and racing games anymore, but periodically I'll still play those or the platformers and all that stuff. Um that's that's a hard one. Um absolute favorite is real tough. Um I think think i i think i'm going to i can give you like a top 5 at least that works okay <laughs> i i think sonic 3 and knuckles like when you combine those two cartridges together that was basically the epitome of that franchise um from an artistic direction from a gameplay perspective um from a soundtrack perspective i think i already said that uh fun fact michael jackson helped work on that soundtrack oh okay Yeah, which is part of why it's almost never released in modern collections because there's a whole lot of copyright silliness with it.
0: Oh, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Um, And other people in uh, in, in Michael Jackson's circle were also in on that. But um, yeah, aside from that, uh, Homeworld was probably one of my favorite strategy games ever, which is basically like you command a fleet and it's uh, in a full 3D space and it's got a great story. Um, Deus Ex, which is kind of like a shooter RPG hybrid thing. Um skies of Arcadia. If you're familiar with that one.
0: I am not, but I'm learning more and more these days. I'm not a huge gamer like I thought oh, I was. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay, so skies of, so many moons ago Sega was still in the console thing, and their last console was called the Dreamcast. And it was a wonderful oh, yeah, little thing. Yeah, it was a wonderful little box that still works and it's still plugged into my TV. Um and there's actually an active Dreamcast collector scene and like retro scene that does all these crazy modifications and stuff to their things. And there's people that are still releasing games for it because of like the because of the hardware, the way it's made, like it's you can it can run just plain burn CDs. So people wow. are making, yeah, people are making games for it now. Uh like this
0: indie culture we're hearing about people. Yeah. <laughs> so and I, I
1: think because of the fact that the console was canceled like two years into its life because Sega was bankrupt, so, like that kind of led to the people who grew up on it to kind of just cling to it, you know, but, yeah. um, but that said, like while Sega's like corporate side was a complete dumpster fire, the creative side was at their best at their peak. And they were just constantly knocking out fantastic titles. And Skies of Arcadia was one of them. It was basically this turn-based RPG in a full 3d space. One of the first games that where you could really fully explore stuff. And it was like, you were a pirate, um, but like everything, but all the ships flew. So it's like, imagine like Pirates of the High Seas, but you're flying, basically. Um, really fantastic story, whole lot of exploration, whole lot of cool stuff. The only problem is that there's an ungodly amount of random encounters.
0: Oh yeah, that was like Legend of Dragoon for me. So many random yeah. encounters. So
1: when they went, when they left the console business, they put they put it on the uh, GameCube of all things and uh but then they reduced the encounter rate which was good it was also one of the first games to have dlc because the dreamcast had a modem oh yeah first console that was online capable right out of the box oh that's super cool actually yeah yeah look it up i, I i'm gonna fight for that little box till now,
0: fun story so i saw a meme like when actually while i was spinning for you and my roommate, Brad, who everyone remembers Brad from being on the show a few episodes ago. But you met Brad, too, a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was like, what's a dream cast? And he had explained it all to me. Yeah. No, it's... Which... it's a... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go on. I was just saying, it's a neat little
1: guy. And, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like it was a pretty... Like, they went out on a blaze of glory. And I'm glad that they're kind of back on their feet now. But,
0: yeah. Yeah. And what I was saying was... <laughs> the whole me not knowing what it is actually leads into our next question. So one of your favorite things to talk about with me is how much younger I am than you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So since you met me so young, did you ever think I would like amount to the guard world that I have been in? Like I, to the big scheme of things, it's not an empire. To me, it feels like I have an empire (laughs) that I never imagined.
1: Yeah. So I, I thought you were going to be kind of like a one and done type of guy. Like you go in, you do your season in college and then you go off, get your degree and get your job for a long time. And then you started, then I saw you continue on afterwards and keep doing it. And it's, it's been really interesting to watch because I, I guess I had this vision in my head of how people will kind of turn out and like, you went in a very different direction in some ways. And it's not a bad thing by any means. Like you, t- you found your own form of success a- as opposed to my definition of it. So that's pretty cool to see too. Um, and I guess that's part of the growing thing on my end is like learning, like there's more than one way to succeed.
0: That's a very nice way to say it. you found your own definition or oh, crap. I already forgot it.
1: Yeah. You're good. <laughs> just re- just rewind it when you get to it. Or when you oh get Yeah. <laughs> And if people
0: have, oh, go on.
1: Oh, that—that—that's basically it. Just yeah, you you found your own way to do it, and that's—and the fact that I that I that I'm able to recognize that 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 other people have other ways of succeeding is my share of growth.
0: Well, that's super cool to hear because I actually never asked you that before. But for all those listening out there, if you have opinions and questions and stuff too, you could always catch us on Twitter at the shape of a star. I couldn't fit podcast in the name, so it's just The Shape of a Star. Yeah, and then the, well. yeah, right. Instagram and Gmail, though, is The Shape of a Star podcast. So The Shape of a Star podcast on Instagram, The Shape of a Star podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear your opinions. And if you have any questions about Guard, feel free to ask us. I'll make sure Giz hears it, too, and we could both answer. Because we have very, very, very different experiences and... Very, very different forms of success, like you just said. Mm-hmm. So on the last question of the main section of tonight or today, whenever you listen to this, what is your dream guard show?
1: To perform or to write slash teach slash watch? Both.
0: Um man. So it doesn't have to be the same one. You could say separate ones for each.
1: Okay. I mean, as a performer, I would have given anything to be in Corona, pretty much any year. Um, just they, but now I guess it's uh, CGT because it's the same designer, choreographer Shapiro. Um, just and that's why I went to Alter Ego is because he was choreographing for them. So I would just want to go and do it at its fullest, most intense, crazy, whatever. Like uh, if you watch what he, what his organizations do, or these organizations he's affiliated with do, like they may not place top three at contests all the time, but there is pretty much no one that's doing stuff as hard as them. Um, So it like, there's like, that's where the killer instinct side of it goes for me is like, not so much that I want to win all the trophies, but I want to know that I'm doing the hardest stuff out there that I'm pushing myself the most um, and to know that I can succeed at that. So that's, that's kind of, when we talk about killer instincts, like there's, there's variations on how that can be interpreted too so that's that's how it would be for me probably um as far as watching i mean i i would say something that really challenges me and makes me think and feel things um like the um there was uh what what was it okay okay you crying no i'm not crying what you okay
0: yeah okay okay remember to conserve energy okay all right i'm taking a shower okay I just sorry we we'll edit that out don't worry okay. <laughs> hold on give me a, give me like the five seconds so i know okay. where to like delete so it's like okay. okay cool so we were talking about your guard show that you wanted to see um
1: that's tough because i i want i want i want to see ones that just make me feel good i wish i could have seen pride of cincinnati when they did uh channel one suite live because that was just such a fun show uh it was just constant energy constant fun balanced with an incredible technical performance as well but then um i also wanted to see like the more emotional ones there was um I wish I could have gone to uh, world championships a couple of years ago when i did their like farewell show basically to WGI. It was so good. Like, yeah. Like with the black and gold and all that, I think. Yeah. I just, cause when they're on the stage, you just hold your breath pretty much the whole time. And I could feel that there was something special happening in the arena, but I didn't feel it the same way as if I was actually there. And so it would have been really wonderful to feel something that, just kind of like shook me emotionally like that, you know? Um, So yeah. Or just, I want to see the standard get changed. Please. Like that's, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the cool things is when you just like, when I watched Onyx, it was twice when I saw Onyx where I saw that happen. Like their first year when they did um, Sleeping Giant and they won their, the gold medal for the first time, I was like, what is happening? this doesn't look or sound or feel like anything I've ever seen in my life. And they were so undeniable and committed to that, to that program that it turned into something really extraordinary. And then they did it again um, in 2014 with, I think like the highest score ever in world-class. So where they basically took that same like design approach, but to a more like, I guess, color guard ish piece of music, but just did it to its extreme end point if that makes any sense
0: yeah uh yeah so and don't forget the one that you want to write
1: so that's gonna be a fun one because i can't uh, i i need to figure out how to do this but this is like i would basically need to have somebody put their whole life into doing or cutting the music for me so i apologize in advance whoever stuck with me um Plus, I'd also just be like the students themselves would have to basically be percussionists to count it all. So um, I really want to do some stuff but from um, a cantata called Oceana by Golijov. And I can text you all of that because it's a whole lot of...
0: That's a mouthful.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> basic basic gist of what you need to know is he's like an Israeli dude that grew up in Argentina grew up on classical tango and Israeli music, or like, and Hebrew music. And so they all kind of merged together into this really wild mix of stuff that you wouldn't think to put
0: together, but it really works. That sounds really pretty already, knowing it, the two styles separately.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, three. Like, traditional classical like and tango and uh, Hebrew.
0: Oh, I was just thinking tango and Hebrew, but yeah.
1: Yeah, so... It's wild, and then he has a pretty interesting orchestration that, that bounces in and out of, like, a full choir, um, flamenco guitar, a uh, whole lot of re- uh, woodwinds. Yeah, it's, it's some good stuff. Um, but, yeah, the whole work is, like, seven movements, and it's all set to Pablo Neruda poetry. You went mute.
0: Oh, sorry, world. Is that a fall show or a winter show?
1: I feel like it's going to have to be a fall show just because of the amount of length to do it. Right. You know, unless we're doing world-class, which I guess if we're talking dream shows, I'm in my dream one day, I'm teaching a world-class program and I can do the full seven minutes and 30 seconds. Plus the, that choreo- that yeah, that's, well, that's, the, that's the maximum time limit, but they also now allow you to do a pre-show and a post-show. Yeah. So with that, I could choreograph the getting on the stage as a pre-show set to the first movement work my way through all of it for the bulk of it, and then their post-show would be the the same kind of, like, choreographed exit. So, God help the kids that are pre- performing in that show, because it's basically a full drum corps show inside. Look yeah.
0: <laughs> but at least there's no wind. Exactly. <laughs> so- so, for those out there who actually do need music clippings, uh, this is the first time I actually am telling everyone this. But John Sipe is actually the guy that made my jingle, and he does all my guard music, and he's like super awesome. Uh, he also is one of the sound engineers for the army band. So, oh, nice. yeah. Oh, he knows everyone. Giz, you'll probably know his entire family because they're all in music, including who he married. <laughs> so, you, I'll tell you all about it later. But <laughs> John said if you need details about that, the shape of a star podcast on Instagram or at gmail.com. That's the easy way to say it. Cool. Sure. But that was not the real commercial. The real commercials now. <laughs> so if you're want to make a smoother transition than what I did, Birds of a Feather Communication is where to go. It's a content and copy business dedicated to making your ideas stand out through catchy and creative writing. They specialize in all sorts of written products, including sales copies, website content, social media captions, speeches, and more. If you have anything to say, Birds can help you say it. To place an order or learn more, check them out on contentbybirds.com. Or look them up on Facebook under Birds of a Feather Communications, LLC. When or if you explore them and decide to use them, mention promo code STAR, you know, shape of a star in your order and get some special prize uh, because you were referred by here. So referrals are cool. Go check them out and be one of the birds of a feather that flock together. And yeah, so cool. That's my two plugs today, everyone. Birds of a feather and John Sype is an amazing thing. I'll send you the music he did for Robinson because Robinson did like three versions of, what is it? The Sound sound of Silence. Mm-hmm. Mashed them together, like he had, like had, they had one of the. Uh, I only know it because it's on Into the Badlands. They had one of the songs from there, Pentatonix, and some other version, mashed together, and he did it fast. Nice. Plus, he knows the guard world, obviously, because oh, he also like helps instruct at MRDs at JMU too. Oh, cool. Okay. So he knows the world. <laughs> I What's think he was John Sipe. John Sipe, yeah. So yeah, I will definitely spread the word more and more about him. But this is about you, not John. So do you, Oh, oh your dogs. Sorry. okay. Norman's, Norman is like
1: wired. He just like kicked the door in. Oh, okay.
0: Hi. Oh hey. Okay, so are you ready for the rapid fire question portion of the night? Sure, let's go for it. Okay. So, question one. What are your chosen coping skills? Procrastination. <laughs> is that acceptable? Uh, it is. <laughs> I would prefer healthy ones from a personal standpoint, but... There. No. Um, chores,
1: probably. Um, like I, I like to feel productive. I like to feel useful, so I'll try to do something meaningful er, so that I feel like I've actually made progress on something. Um, so that's probably the, the single biggest thing.
0: And yet procrastination was your first choice. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> um, For video games or oh. something, I don't know,
0: cooking. Ooh, I, I
1: didn't know you cooked that well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm decent. I get, I get it done. I made a beer can chicken last night. That was really good.
0: Ooh, I know you barbecued and like yes. you had a whole setup. It was on your Snapchat once, but yeah.
1: Yes.
0: All right, pick a side, Lancaster or York?
1: I feel like this is in reference to something and I have no idea what.
0: <laughs> That's not the question. The question is just pick a side.
1: Lancaster is more fun to say, but I'm worried about what I just got
0: myself into. Or the roses. Um. <laughs> uh, oh, I should know that. <laughs> All right. So where do you stand on the Oxford comma?
1: It is a useful tool, but don't be a snob about it.
0: If I told you to bring a pie to pie day, what kind of pie would you bring? Key lime. Oh, nice. What is an innocent phrase that you've mistakenly or subconsciously weaponized? Hmm. Hmm. That's a I'm not sure.
1: I, I feel like there's I feel like there's something like in a rehearsal setting that I probably said kind of a completely innocent way that's kind of taken on a new life, like where I'm just like telling the kids to do something or students, where I, where I tell the students that I like get ready for this, that or the other for like something related to PT or get your shoes. Yeah. Cause they know what's coming with the, after the shoes.
0: Okay. What's a trend that went too far? Uh, Crocs. Yeah. Oh, everyone in Card always says Crocs. Okay. (laughs) If you could rule an established country or territory in this world, where and why?
1: Uh, I got two directions. One is either to make it better or to just kind of coast.
0: (laughs) You could say both.
1: If I just want to have a victory lap because everyone's happy and everything's great, then New Zealand. And it's really pretty there. Mm-hmm. Um, choose your troubled country for the other one. Probably Russia. Okay. For the clean it up
0: side. If you were the pageant contestant or a large platform holder, what would your philanthropy or cause be?
1: almost certainly youth participation in the performing arts.
0: Nice. (laughs) Obviously. Uh, (laughs) Or the disinitialing of standardized testing. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) I don't know if that's a philanthropic stance, but it's certainly worth it. Hmm. I don't know. I think it's worth it too. What avatar nation would you come from?
1: Hmm. That's a tough one. Personality-wise, where do you think I would go?
0: Uh, I could see you Earth or Fire, but I would lean more towards Earth. Fair. But what I, are you, well, it's you. <laughs> it's your opinions, not mine. I don't know you as well as you know yourself.
1: Probably Earth. I, there's a part of me that I was thinking air and water, first of all things.
0: Hmm. <laughs> well... It's your version of yourself. I'm but I am try.
1: then I think about like what the lifestyle would be for Air, and I'm like, yeah, mm, I'm good.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you're a lot more grounded than that. Uh, who would play you in a documentary or movie about your life?
1: That's it. I have no idea. Um, what's his name? Um, a bunch of my students said that I lo- that I reminded them or kind of looked like the boy from 13
0: Reasons Why. Oh, okay. I don't know his name either, but we have the power of the internet in front of us. There you go. Uh, the guy that plays Clay Jensen? I'm looking him up. Yes, that guy. Dylan Minnette. Dylan Minnette. I'll take it yeah i mean he's young enough to play you because someone pointed this out last time once if we had to choose someone it has to be someone younger than us obviously because we have to achieve it enough to get famous
1: there you go <laughs> and then
0: find someone younger than us to play us but cool i don't know why i was half expecting you to say elijah wood but on I mean, the l- a nerdy and
1: awkward side down
0: Hmm. last question What is your ideal five minutes of fame?
1: Well, if we're staying within my field, probably actually like getting through to somebody important in a public setting.
0: Nice. That's yeah. Super simple. Super noble. Awesome. So is there anything you'd like to say to the world before we wrap this up? Uh. just
1: find people who have different experiences from you and listen to them talk to them and recognize that you're not going to know and feel things exactly the way that they do but understanding where they come from is a long way towards making everything better um yeah that's 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 basically been my lesson for all of this stuff that i've been doing in all my classes so and just in general the people i'm around is just Talk to them, ask them questions, and listen.
0: Excellent words to end on. Like, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Of course. It's been fun. I'm sorry that it took so long to get to actually get me nailed down. But I'm glad that we,
0: glad we did it. It was band season um, <laughs> exactly. or winter season. So ended. I understand. We all go through it. Well, at least all of us in the world. If you know, mm-hmm. you know, as the kids say. For sure. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Giz. Um, uh-huh. World, catch us next orbit, as is the phrase, because you know, stars orbiting. <laughs> Go with it, world. Catch us next orbit, and see you next time.